Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm Pietro Borletto, media editor for FNS Reports, and it's so good to be back with all of you after a short absence in the month of November. Daylon, Blake, how are you two? I'm feeling it, man. Can't wait to get back into it. I missed you guys a lot. I really appreciate that, Daylon. I miss you all too. Very happy to be here. Special shout out to Molly Kornfeld, who substitute uh, hosted um, not last month, but the month before and did an amazing job. Hi, Molly. Hi, how's it going? Like I told you before we started recording this, if you have something good to say, say it. This is an open invitation. Thanks, Pietro. I'll be sure to jump in. Well, we have a bunch of st- good stuff to talk about today. Two articles that are related, both from FNS Science and Reviews. And then something totally unrelated, but I think kind of cool and interesting from FNS Reports. Blake, why don't you start us off with your study from reviews? Thanks, Pietro. So the title of my article is In Vitro Maturation of Oocytes for Fertility Preservation, a Comprehensive Review. This is by first author Michael Grinberg out of Paris, France. And so we're going to start off by traveling back in time. I'm going to do a little bit of a history recap for us. In vitro maturation refers to the recovery of immature cumulus oocyte complexes from these small antral follicles, either transvaginally under ultrasound guidance or straight from the ovarian cortex in the lab. You can also have transplantation of ovarian tissue that was previously removed prior to gonadotoxic treatment. So way back as far as 1935 in the Journal of Experimental Medicine, Pincus and Ainsman first reported germinal vesicles that could be isolated from antral follicles. And this was in a rabbit model, and these could be spontaneously matured in vitro and subsequently fertilized. And so this led to the initial investigation of in vitro maturation. However, they, the authors noted that there were disappointing outcomes. Fast forward a few decades, Steptoe and Edwards, names in which we are all quite familiar with as REIs, first reported in Lancet that oocytes could be laparoscopically aspirated from follicles and ovaries that were stimulated with gonadotropins. And then the interest of IVM sharply had declined afterwards, though, because the ovaries were able to be stimulated with gonadotropins and had a lot more success than, than trying to aspirate these real small antral follicles. Then in 1990s, in vitro maturation reemerged, but this was mainly by means to prevent ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome in patients at risk, such as PCOS women. Then along came antagonist cycles, loop-run triggers that we know very well lower the risk of OHSS. Then in 2014, the first live birth after a frozen embryo transfer that was obtained from ovarian tissue oocyte in vitro maturation cycle occurred. And then in 2020, the first live birth after embryo transfer from frozen oocytes obtained from ultrasound-guided aspiration in vitro maturation oocytes was obtained. However, still remained a need for IVM in the setting of scenarios such as the immediate need to start gonadotoxic treatments such as chemotherapy. But because antrophollicles are present in the ovaries at any time, it's at any time in the menstrual cycle, immature cumulus oocyte complexes can always be readily recovered. And thus, this review article is going to dive into articles published on IVM, which I'm going to refer to in vitro maturation as IVM moving thus forward. 
So they looked at articles at IVM of oocytes for fertility preservation, describing the methods, indications, and characteristics of the different study groups and outcomes, which we'll talk about a little bit briefly too at the end. And so when they looked at the methods of this paper, they first talked about IVM after transvaginal oocyte aspiration. They talked about how this can be done at any point in the menstrual cycle, which is a nice tool to use for those patients needing to undergo chemo ASAP. Obviously, aspiration, when we think about when you do an egg retrieval, aspiration for an unstimulated follicle is going to be quite challenging. I know that I sometimes will very greedily try and go for the small follicles, knowing that it's very well likely to be a germinal vesicle, but I still like to go for them at times and drive my embryologist nuts. But the authors talk about how only about 50% recovery rate of immature oocytes from follicles, such as antral follicles getting these immature oocytes, um, only about half the time they can recover eggs. You can consider gonadotropin administration with or without a trigger, Lupron trigger or HCD trigger, and this can improve access to the follicles because they're larger, easier to aspirate. However, no robust data are available according to the authors after they did their literature review. And the results have been quite heterogeneous, mainly because of the variations in the doses that the patients had received and the indications had used. Interestingly, in one cohort of about 340 patients, they demonstrated that patients needed to have an antral follicle count and serum AMH of 20 follicles and AMH of 3.7 in order to obtain just 10 in vitro matured oocytes for cryopreservation. So numbers that we would normally think of a very good responding patient. Um, however, again, if you're aspirating these very small antral follicles, we're hoping to get 10 oocytes in this situation. So next they talked about doing IVM after ex vivo collection of ovarian tissue oocytes. So Ovarian tissue cryopreservation followed by ovarian tissue transplantation when the patient has become essentially infertile after cancer treatment, such as having gonadotoxic treatments, or you get oocyte collection within the lab from ovarian tissue that's been previously extracted. This is currently considered to be the only viable fertility preservation method in prepubertal girls. And it does have advantages such as you can get many follicles at once. You don't have to utilize hormonal stimulation. And if you transplant the tissue in a subsequent time, you can have restoration of natural hormonal production and potentially achieve a natural conception in these patients. And they do discuss that there have been about 130 live births reported from ovarian cortex transplantation. So indications for this would be patients with breast cancer, even though we do have well-established protocols for ovarian stimulation with aromatase inhibitors, for example, we can lower the circulating estradiol concentration. Sometimes oncologists may not be comfortable with us as REIs doing this, and we might need to extract ovarian tissue for cryopreservation, for example. They also discuss uh, hematologic conditions, and this is a little tricky, and it was interesting to think about because if you're taking ovarian tissue with hematologic conditions, there's potential hypothetical concern that you're reintroducing this malignancy back into the body whenever you retransplant the tissue into the body. And so um, this is one of debate that the authors briefly mentioned. And then there's non-oncologic conditions, such as patients undergoing gender-affirming hormonal treatments. Long-term effects of prolonged testosterone exposure and future fertility are poorly understood, so therefore these patients may want to uh, cryopreserve tissues. And particularly, these would be prepubertal patients. So now I'm going to just kind of recap the outcomes when they look at in vitro maturation outcomes. So the first they talked about is number of oocytes. 
Cumulus oocyte complexes can be incubated in very specifically designed IVM media. And this does result in an overall maturation rate quite a bit lower than what we would expect in our usual IVF cycles, but as low as about 25%, as high as 60%. And again, the timing of the menstrual cycle when they aspirated these did not make a difference. Um, it is poorly understood as to why maturation rates are so low. They discussed there's a possible dyssynchrony between uh, the, the nuclear architecture, nuclear maturation, as well as the uh, follicular fluid as well, playing a big role in that. Something I found to be a, an interesting point that they made was that the maturation rates essentially follow an inverted U-shape when they look at the patient age. So as young as six years and above 30 years, this follows a, a, an inverted U-shape when you look at the success of these oocytes maturing in subsequent thaw cycles. And this is also seen with aneuploid rates, this inverted U-shape. So then they get into thawing of the oocytes. In general, data is lacking about the outcomes of these. However, some studies do report that there's a thaw survival rate of about 76%. Overall, blastulation rates are inferior to oocytes that are cryopreserved from regular cycles from IVF. And all the reasoning is poorly understood. Again, they discuss the possible dyssynchrony between meiotic resumption or nuclear architecture and the cytoplasm. And then they talk about their survival fall rates as low as 67% for embryos and 75% for oocytes. Again, a bit lower than what we expect in our usual IVF cycles, but still when considering these patients or their scenarios, these are certainly viable and good options. And then they discuss pregnancies and live birth rates. So although the data is limited with regards to this, there are reports of neonatal outcomes such as preterm birth, small for gestational age, large for gestational age, congenital anomalies, methylation patterns of imprinted genes. All of these things they looked at do not appear to be different between infants conceived from in vitro matured oocytes as well as just uh, the regular IVF uh, cycles. And there's also a study out of Korea. They did a long-term follow-up study, even up to the age of 19 years of age, and it showed no associated increased risk of IVM-conceived infants as well as IVF infants. So reassuring data with regards to this. So in conclusion, and a couple of comments I had, the field of fertility preservation has grown immensely over the past couple of decades. IVM is no longer considered experimental, but does rely on very, very complex process of oocyte maturation. Cryopreservation of oocytes or embryos after controlled ovarian stimulation is the most established method for fertility preservation in post-pubertal women. However, in some clinical cases, such as urgent need to start chemo, I saw a patient today, for example, who had this, and I was thinking about this article, but urgent need to start chemo, or if they have a contraindication to stimulation, in which doing a couple of weeks of stimulation is not feasible, IVM is a very good option for these patients. So it does appear that the follicular environment is crucial for appropriate development, as we can see by these lower or inferior um, maturation rates and blastulation rates. Um, but, and obviously this is curtailed when you have an immature oocyte that's aspirated from a very, very small antral follicle. And so the biggest challenge is moving forward improvement of the developmental competence of these IVM oocytes, which is significantly lower than that of the IVF matured counterparts, but uh, moving forward, still a lot to be investigated in this field. So a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to discuss, but nonetheless, very interesting. I think this is a very important field, uh, important area of our specialty. What do you guys think? Any thoughts about this? Do you guys perform IVM mature facilities? How do you perform them? Tissue cryopreservation versus ultrasound guided aspiration. Just curious to your thoughts in general.
I'm going to defer to uh, Pietro and Molly on the clinical questions there and whether or not the, a lot of IVM is done. But I, I, I would just like to underscore how important this is. And I appreciate you highlighting this article because, I mean, it's right up my alley. But I think that IVM has been long thought of just a, a means of like rescuing these GV uh, oocytes that you, you, you know, aggressive uh, retrievals like your own Blake like to to get after every little small follicle in there but yeah the reality is there's a, a lot of reasons to do this and first and foremost I think it gets some oocytes in the bank for these patients who have the emergent chemo if you can get some oocytes recovered from the ovary if you're going to cryopreserve the whole ovary get those enteral follicle derived oocytes out and IVM and freeze them get them in the bank for when that patient comes back but more than that, and more importantly, I think that there's little understanding and appreciation of the follicular life cycle in the context of a heterotopic or orthotopic transplant of ovarian tissue. I think you judge the follicular uh, growth based on your experience in the ovary, but given the transplant site and multiple variables, I think it's pretty clear from my own other, many others have indicated that the maturation of these follicles happens at a more rapid pace, and that window is more narrow. And I think that one of the major oversights of a lot of physicians, clinicians that are doing the ovarian tissue autotransplantation is that they wait too long, when this is a really narrow window. And sometimes you really only have one chance where you mobilize the entire cohort of follicles in this transplanted tissue, and you'll really get one cycle where you can get a, a, a appreciable amount of oocytes. So I think in that case, the hedge of re recovering those oocytes maybe a little bit earlier and in vitro maturing is, I think, a hedge that I would I would take, you know, as, you know, we like to joke about me being a non-clinician. But based on my uh, uh, looking at these, in particular in xenografts, it looks like um, the follicles that grow in the context of these transplants are, are a bit different in terms of their pace. So I think it'd be better to pull them out and really refine the way that we can carry them along in vitro in order to guarantee some recovered oocytes for these patients who are really in, in urgent and desperate need of oocytes. Uh, that's my take. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about the clinical stuff. I think the initial idea for IVM was really as a risk reduction method to for patients who are at really high risk for hyperstimulation. That was happening in parallel with people exploring this as a fertility preservation tool. I think modern day IVF, we have really good tools to prevent hyperstimulation. Like if you're being thoughtful about your gonadotropin dose, you're being thoughtful about your trigger strategy, a, a freeze up front strategy. I think moderate to severe hyperstimulation really should be a thing of the past, barring kind of unforeseen circumstances. But I think the part that's really exciting is really the the opportunity for fertility preservation in in very short amount of time. Can't tell you how many times I've been on the receiving end of a consult for a patient who got a terrible diagnosis of some malignancy and needs to start chemo yesterday. No one's going to give you 14 days to stimulate an ovary, but if I can make a compelling argument that I can retrieve a whole ovary and ovarian tissue and give this person a fighting shot at having in vitro maturated oocytes down the road that are going to have reproductive potential, I think that's powerful. And that really offers a huge window of hope for these women who are faced with terrible, terrible news. 
we at Boston IVF don't offer ovarian tissue cryo yet, but it's something that I think we're exploring. I think the hardest logistics of doing this really is, is having a lab that's able to process this tissue. I know, Dalon, when I was at Cornell, we, we were doing a lot of ovarian tissue cryo. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the research that was happening about the in vitro maturation of this tissue? Yeah, well, I mean, our goal was really to try and optimize the survival of tissue to improve yields. Um, but I think what, what we found, which was of great interest to us, is that even in the discarded tissue, there's a, a surfeit of, in this case, a lot of primordial primary follicles that are discarded. And I know that's not the target that we're talking about here, but I think, you know, to try and uh, skirt around your question uh, there, the, the potential in this tissue is even greater than what we're talking about here. When we talk about in vitro maturation, I think the holy grail is to really do like an ex vivo folliculogenesis type thing. And, you know, a lot of investigators, namely Evelyn Telfair and others, have, have, have Teresa Woodruff, many have looked at the idea of reconstructing, recapitulating folliculogenesis from these early phases. But as you guys know, I mean, the, the dynamics of growth of a follicle from 200 microns to 20 millimeters, that's that's a, a difficult nut to crack. Um, but that I think was the, the real goal of our research and the, the, the long horizon there is, is if we can do an ex vivo maturation from very, very early stages. And, and the key there um, that's been shown from research, not in our group, but others, is that you don't really need to go all the way to you know, 10 millimeters or even five millimeters. If you can get any antral stage follicle, you can get the development of an antrum, I think you can carry along the rest of that maturation process in vitro with just the cumulus oocyte complex. So I think the future is very bright um, and this is gonna be a means to, to preserve fertility for a lot of patients in the future. I think stepping way back to kind of a simple clinical aspect, I think this is a really solid review for a fellow who's interested in learning more about oncofertility. It uh, has very good breadth and depth. So definitely recommend the read. Dalen, why don't you keep us going on this theme um, and tell us what you have from FNS Science this month? Yeah, I have a really strong interest, as you might imagine, in fertility preservation, and this wrinkle of in vitro maturation is really right up my alley. Um, so I can attest also to the fact that the field is moving at, at a really quick pace, but the story I'm, I'm going to share with you guys is going for kind of warp speed, um, incorporating a bevy of cutting-edge approaches to revitalize the potential of aged oocytes in this case. So this isn't a fertility preservation story. Um, it's more about uh, rescuing these aged and dysfunctional oocytes. Uh, and that's where the story starts, with women near the end of their reproductive reserve when the few oocytes that are recoverable are often of decreased quality. Uh, a major reason oocyte quality is diminished is related to impaired spindle assembly, amongst other things. Uh, and this impaired spindle assembly has been linked to energy insufficiency downstream of reduced or dysfunctioning mitochondria that occurs with age. So one idea that has been in the mix for a couple of decades now is the notion of transplanting mitochondria to rescue oocyte quality. Now, mitochondrial transfer has taken center stage in the world of assisted reproduction for another reason, and that's the treatment of mitochondrial disease uh, multiple studies over the years have experimentally attempted mitochondrial replacement 
between host and donor oocytes or zygotes. Uh, but these are technically very daunting experiments and require a source of donor material. Uh, so still further studies have actually used an autologous source of mitochondria, uh, in this case, granulosa cells, uh, for this idea of rescuing aged oocytes. Um, and there was a study actually in FNS from almost two decades ago showing really remarkable, in my view, Im improvements in oocyte quality and outcome in aged women who had experienced multiple failed cycles after their oocytes had been injected with autologous granulosa cell-derived cytoplasm. And we're talking pretty crazy results here. Pregnancy rates of 35% in the treated group versus 6% in the untreated group, N equals like 70 in each group. So this is a pretty significant result. Check out that paper. Pretty crazy, right? Well, that wasn't crazy enough for Shuang Tang's group at Shenyang Agricultural University in China, because by their logic, when you're introducing foreign cytoplasm into an oocyte, is going to become a human being, you want to have a soft touch. And this is a story that really packs it in. Building on this idea that mitochondrial transfer can rescue oocyte quality, Tang's group aimed to establish a more optimized autologous transfer technique that minimizes patient inconvenience and damage to oocytes. Uh, the story is really very technically dense, so I encourage all to have a really close look at the article, but apart from the rationale that autologous mitochondria should be introduced more gently, the story hinged on an important premise, and that is that granulosa cells, the source of these mitochondria, they age alongside the oocytes. So the idea of using them as a source of autologous donor material may not be as beneficial as, and this is where Tang et al. went Rambo. Rather than use autologous GCs, they aimed to use umbilical cord-derived cells, thereby providing a source material that is frozen in time with a neonatal tabula rasa, so to speak. But that's not all. I mean, it goes on and on with this paper. They just couldn't get enough. Because the umbilical cord-derived cells, they're not granulosa cells, right? So maybe the mitochondrial mix in this non-granulosa cell is not perfectly aligned with what might work for rescuing the oocyte. So it seems like a lot of obstacles surmount. You got the wrong cell, it's old, but Tang Lab was up to the task. They used mice as a model. That's critical to understand. Of course, it's always mice. Um, and they established an intricate protocol that started with neonates. They isolated mesenchymal stem cells from the umbilical cord of pups and cryopreserved them. All right, so they froze the cord of mice, guys. And then once those pups came of age, those umbilical cord cells were thawed and induced into granulosa cells. So they made them into granulosa cells. And then those induced granulosa cells were aggregated with GV oocytes that they got from these grown-up uh, mice. Uh, and these GV oocytes had their zona weakened um, to allow an association with those induced uh, granulosa cells. Those gr induced granulosa cell oocyte complexes were further incubated with GDF9 to foster these transonal projections uh, and enable mitochondrial transfer from the induced GCs to the oocyte. After three days in those con conditions in vitro, the oocytes were subjected to IVM fertilization, and the resultant two cell zygotes were transferred into pseudopregnant mice. The outcome measures were similarly baroque. 
uh, mitochondrial ultrastructure by electron microscope, metabolism and spindle organization assessed by confocal microscopy. Ultimately, they showed that mitochondria did in fact migrate from these induced GCs, granulose cells, to the oocytes. That maturation rate was increased. The quality of the oocytes was improved as well as the birth rate. Uh, a ton of work and yeah, a, a pretty impressive result. Are we gonna be repurposing cord blood? For a similar approach, that seems very unlikely. But uh, the strength of idea and the scope of experience performed here uh, were very impressive to me. And I would encourage you guys and all the listeners to have a read of this article. But you better bring your, you know, your reading glasses. If it's deep and dense and uh, a cup of coffee, because it's going to take a minute for you to get through this. But I think it's going to expand your horizons. I mean, big ups to the IRB on this one. Big ups to the funding agencies to to keep this going. This seems like it was a uh, not a short study um, by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I've always had patients ask me, like, should I freeze my umbilical cord because we think these stem cells may be useful down the road? And typically, we're thinking about it being useful for treating adult or early childhood onset conditions in that child or in a sibling. That's never crossed my mind that it could be actually be useful to treat age-related infertility in the woman who grew that umbilical cord herself um, down the road. That kind of blew my mind. You you have patients ask you that, and as an REI to freeze their umbilical cord. Uh, I provide comprehensive uh, reproductive care, Dr. Evans, from beginning, and in beginning I mean HSG, which is the topic of our next study all the way to the bitter end once the placenta Ooh. comes out and there's a cord in hand. Wow. You must get well, a lot I, of sleep. As a person who works in stem cells and who has no MD, uncharacteristically, everybody asks for my advice about cord blood too. And that's that's the one thing that I say is that the idea that you're you're going to save your kid's life by doing this seems far-fetched. It's an insurance policy that you probably don't need given the odds of childhood cancer or malignancy. But... Uh, with all the stem cell technologies that have been going on, that is a key idea with induced pluripotent stem cells and creating like a toolkit from your own cells uh, for regenerative medicine. That is one critical facet of it is that your, your own cells are old. And that's what I liked about this story is this, this innovative concept, I think, of using the material that you have on ice. And it does raise that question. All these kids that have their core blood frozen may have this un, unrecognized benefit that they have young cells in the bank that they can use to, to for regenerative purpose in the future, further widening the health gap between those that have and those that don't. I think that uh, just I'm extremely impressed with the idea of these authors at this paper. Just to think of that concept just is, is blowing me away. So I'm very impressed. Kudos to the authors of that paper. I mean, in a uh, unnatural pivot to something unrelated to to maturation and oocytes, I want to talk to you a little about another study that I think also kudos to the authors for pulling off. We don't see enough randomized controlled trials in reproductive medicine, and when we do, it's always worth highlighting. Um, this is from a group of authors that is no um, no stranger to RCTs. Maybe you've heard of the name Rick Legros if you read the New England Journal, if you've ever read anything on PCOS. But this is a great paper from Rick Legros and team in Hershey, Pennsylvania from Penn State. And it starts back in the 50s. 
back in 1950s, people were already having the debate of should we be using oil versus water-based contrast media to evaluate tubal patency? It's a debate that's as old as time. And early data actually suggested that there may be some benefit to using oil-based media for improving spontaneous pregnancy rates. This idea of tubal flushing came about. Is there gunk in the tubes? Are there filmy adhesions? Is there something about the immune reactivity of putting stuff through the tubes that helps improve spontaneous pregnancy rates? There's actually even a big RCT in the Netherlands called H2OLI that looked at this and randomized people to oil versus water-based contrast media. And guess what, guys? It showed a 40% improvement in live birth in patients with infertility who received oil-based media versus water-based media. But HSG is starting to become a thing of the past. I think more and more a lot of us are using sono HSG or saline sonograms with bubble studies or FemView or HICOSI, whatever you want to call it. Eliminate the need for x-ray equipment, fluoroscopy, exposure to radiation, and do this all using a transvaginal ultrasound. Um, but with these methods, we're all using water-based contrast media. This group of authors, and again, I told you it's a notable group of authors, they postulated that they could use an oil-based media for uh, ultrasound assessment of tubal patency and achieve the same degree of diagnostic utility as this water-based media, and maybe even see the same bump in spontaneous pregnancy rates from oil-based tubal flushing like they did for HSG. So what do they do? They put together a single-center RCT, double-blinded, and compared the two. This is a study that was performed at Penn State in Hershey, and they randomized patients one-to-one -one between 2019 and 2020. And these participants that they were recruiting were infertility patients between the age of 18 and 40, who were planning to initiate fertility treatment after testing, but not IVF. And really the goal was after you had your diagnostic evaluation, we want you to start to get pregnant within the next six months with something, but not IVF. And they excluded patients at high risk for tubal disease. They did this one based on their history, if they've ever had tubal surgery, history of PID, endometriosis, but they also actually performed an initial sono HSG with saline to ensure that there was no pelvic pathology before they flushed these tubes with um, oil-based media. Again, this was out of abundance of precaution. This was the first time that it was being done. This was a pilot study, and I think erring on the side of conservative was good, but certainly a quote-unquote limitation to the study if you're trying to be a purist about exposing both the the, the case and the control group or the intervention arm and the non-intervention arm to both um, types of flushing or tubal assessment media. Their primary outcome was pregnancy rate, defined as ongoing pregnancy at eight weeks with a viable intrauterine pregnancy within six months of the sono HSG. Their secondary outcomes were pain scores. They enrolled a small number of people. Again, a pilot study. They weren't really powered to detect kind of big and crazy things, but wanted to really prove the feasibility, the safety, the tolerability of this method. And of those 58 patients, once they randomized them one-to-one, -one, the bottom line is they actually found no difference in pregnancy rates. And luckily, they also found no difference in pain scores. So from that perspective, it seemed not to give you the bump that an oil-based media gave you. didn't seem to hurt anymore. But there were some differences in the diagnostic utility of these two methods. There was no difference in visualizing at least one patent tube between that initial saline-based sono HSG and the subsequent oil-based sono HSG, but they did find a difference in the likelihood to visualize both tubes during that initial test. And they found that the saline group performed better than the oil-based group. So I think if you're trying to compare one method that we've been using for a long time to a new method that maybe we can extrapolate and add it to this armamentarium 
didn't give you the pregnancy bump that we hoped it would, at least in this small, highly selected population of people. And it maybe actually was a little bit worse from a diagnostic perspective in evaluating both tubes compared to our traditional saline method. Now, I don't think this is a practice changing article. It's not gonna make me wanna go out and buy oil-based uh, media for HSG, but I like that people are thinking about how to take what is old and make it new again and see if it fits within our current paradigm of how we deliver care. I don't know what it's like for you, Blake, or for you, Molly, in your clinics, but we, our volume has grown so much at Boston IVF that it's actually hard to get patients scheduled for routine diagnostic testing. There's so many more patients than there are HSG slots. So we really are trying to maximize these ultrasound-based methods, these, these things that don't require fluoroscopy, don't require radiation exposure. Um, and it's nice to kind of continuously innovate in that space. I'll end by saying that I was actually at the American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists meeting last week, and there was a lot of people talking about tubal assessment um, and in-office tubal assessment. And one of the things I saw was a, a product called XM Foam. And I should put a caveat here. I have no financial relationship. Neither does the podcast with XM Foam. But the idea was that this was a foam that had several thousand little micro particles of, of, of bubbles in the fluid so that you got a really nice contrast enhancing image more than what you can get with a couple of bubbles that you generate in saline. And it kind of stayed in the tube real nicely, allowed you to see the whole length of the tube and allow you to have a very obvious spill. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff that's coming out that's not radiation, that's not iodinated contrast media that I think is going to be safe, that's going to be helpful and will allow, I think, patients to have a more comfortable, pleasant diagnostic experience, but also kind of get them through the diagnostic part and onto the treatment part, which seems to be a bottleneck that at least we're facing. Blake, Molly, are you guys using anything other than the traditional HSGs and, and the FEMVUs or the HICOSES? We're just regular HSG at our practice. Uh, I don't know, you know, listening to this, maybe that means we're archaic in Oklahoma, but I, I don't know. I didn't think we were. Uh, but I you're, will a, say, you're a purist. We're a purist. That's exactly right. Um, now, I know this is a, a smaller subset of patients, too, but I'm just thinking of when you have an HSG and you have a extremely slow spill or you might notice loculations distally or indication that distally that might be kind of clubbed and there's just maybe the slightest little trickle of fluid, you know, indicating that there's further tool pathology. Can you pick up on any of this stuff with these other methods of assessing tubal patency? And, and I don't know because I don't do them. So I'm, I'm curious if that's uh, a concern you guys have too. In my world, I kind of help stratify patients to one method versus the other. If I'm really concerned about tubal disease, hydrocelpinges, block tubes, based on their clinical history, endometriosis, PID, prior tubal surgery, prior nexal or pelvic surgery, that's a person I'm gonna be feel more strongly about getting an HSG for. If this is a low risk patient who's never had any of those things, and I just wanna really prove patency to be able to get them started with either ovulation induction, IUIs, then I think some of these ultrasound-based methods at least in my end of a couple of experiences so far, I think that they're more comfortable for patients. It's more comfortable for me not having to wear lead and kind of get sued up for the, the fluoroscopy of HSG. Um, and ultimately, I think it's just a path of least resistance thing. We have a lot more of those spots available in our clinic than we do some of these HSG spots. But it really requires you to be thoughtful about choosing the right study for the right patient based on their clinical history so that you don't miss a hydro, but you prove that the tubes are open. I'm glad it's more Sounds comfortable. Messy,
that uh, oily, oily HSG sounds like a big mess. Is that, does that figure in? Where's all that oil go when it's done? Man, that's a good question, Dalen. Yeah, unfortunately, it, it does leak out. That's where it goes. Um, the smallest part about it ends up in the pelvis through the fallopian tubes, but the probably the bulk of it is ending up with in a pad on underwear, on pants, and and yes, I think it can be messy, but I think at the end of the day, people want a good diagnostic test, a diagnostic test that tells them the answer in the moment and not require a second or a third or even a, um, a more invasive test. So I think there's some tolerability there from an oil versus water-based media that people are willing to take on. But I don't know that I'm ready to make the switch to oil-based media based on this wonderful RCT from FNS Reports. I love when they get pregnant after an HSG. We're traditional in our practice too. We do an HSG and then a saline sonogram, but uh, I like to do the the poor man's uh, sono HSG, which is if I didn't see fluid in the cul-de-sac and now I do, we have a tube open. Yeah, I mean, and there's other ways. The One of my favorite ways that I'm teaching my fellows is the tubal assessment during hysteroscopy. If you actually generate some bubbles during your hysteroscopy and look at those bubbles kind of headed towards the cornua, those bubbles are there and they get sucked in and disappear, tubes are open. It's going from a high pressure system to a negative pressure system inside the peritoneum. You prove patency. The bubbles aren't disappearing. That tube's blocked. There's nothing that's drawing that, the, that bubble from positive to negative pressure. And that's, I think, also a poor man's HSG to prove patency. But if you're in there and you're already looking, it's a nice double check. So check that out next time you're doing a hysteroscopy. See if you see those bubbles disappear. Pietro, I'm just so proud of you, Sam. Teaching my fellows, you, you've just grown up so fast. Yeah, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> board eligible reproductive endocrinologist. Passed my RA yeah. written boards. I'll have you know, Dr. Evans, and uh, barreling towards the oral boards next year. Yeah, and I will announce it to our podcast as you did me whenever you take yours so everyone can look for your results. Yeah, it's coming. Well, that's all the time we have for today, guys. It was really good to be back with all of you and, and, and Molly joining us again on the podcast today. Um, we have another great episode coming out in January. Stay tuned for that. But until we meet again, we'll see you guys next month. Dalon, Blake, Molly. Peace out. Up oh, the base is coming out. Let's go. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.